David Russell once said, the hardest thing to learn in life is which bridge to cross and which to burn. The decisions you make today determine the life you live tomorrow. You are not the product of the circumstances. You are a product of your decisions. My today's guest is the ultimate decision scientist and performance enhancer. His expertise on how to perform at utmost potential has been sought after by some of the most successful individuals, such as the billionaire senior Richard Branson and Steve Wozniak. Today, we will be talking about why it's a very bad idea to do too many things at once and why even good people make bad decisions and what is the constraint theory and how we can use it to make better decisions. Please welcome a world-renowned expert in decision-making field, Dr. Alan Bernard. Hi, Alan. Thank you for coming on Contributors Podcast. Hi, Victor. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And uh, according to Simon Sinek, the true test of leader is uh, how they function when constraints are present. Could you explain in plain English what is the constraint theory and how we can use it to make better decisions? Sure. So when you think about a, an organization, there's a goal of the organization. And that goal determines what resources you need to achieve that goal but it also determines the extent of the resources that you need. So if you have a goal to make a million dollars by providing a specialist services like a marketing agency, or you have a goal of making $10 million by manufacturing some kind of widget, those goals will dictate what resources you need and how much of each of them you need. A constraint is simply a resource that you don't have enough of to achieve the goal that you've set for yourself. And a constraint can only be really in five areas. And it's important to understand that these kind of from an analyst, analyst point of view should happen in, in sequence, in the following sequence. So you've set the goal. The first question you have, whether you are a for-profit organization or for purpose, will be to ask yourself, do I have enough customers that want to buy my product or service to achieve the goal that I've set for myself? If you don't have enough customers to achieve the goal, you can guess what is the one thing to focus on is to make sure you find a way of attracting enough customers that would be willing to buy your product or service. The next question is, do you have enough capacity internally to reliably deliver your product or service to satisfy enough customers to meet the goal? If you say no, then guess that is the one thing you should focus on is how to get more capacity. The third one is, do you have enough supply of whatever you need? It could be raw materials or components or specific skill set or something else in order to produce enough of these services or products to satisfy enough customers to meet your goal. If you say no, then that would be the one thing to focus on is make sure you can get enough supply. And then the, the fourth one is cash. Do you have enough cash to be able to buy enough of whatever you need to produce enough? The last one, which is took us a long time to kind of realize the ultimate constraint in the business is management attention. If you think about 
moment and all the listeners and viewers think about it, the number of things that demand our attention will always exceed our available attention. Attention is even scarcer than time. If you think about it, you have about 24 hours a day in time. Now the question is, how much attention do you have? If you say, no, I don't have enough available attention, then that is the one thing to focus on. Now, what theory of constraints or constraint theory says is every system will have at least one constraint or the bottleneck. In more specific terms, mm. our limited attention is the real constraint. Then how do I mm. exploit my limited attention is I have to make sure I don't make bad decisions because bad decisions mm. ended up wasting our limited attention. We must stop doing things that are not helping. We must start the things that are actually helping and we must do it in the right way, right? Don't multitask, single task. And of course, the last part is we have to learn from experience. Every decision that we make, we should treat as an experiment. And here's an important thing for the listeners and viewers. We do not learn from experience. We learn from experiments. You have wow. to think about every decision you make as an experiment, right? And there's two criteria right. to make something an experiment. Firstly, you have an hypothesis or an idea that you want to test. So think about touching a hot stove plate, right? What are you testing? You're right. testing, is it okay to touch this thing, right? That's the first criteria. Right. So when you're doing an experiment, for example, in the market, you say, we assume that by adding this additional feature to our product or service, more customers would be willing to pay more, buy more, buy more frequently. How can I test that, right? What's the simplest experiment I can do to go and test that? But there's a second criteria for a good experiment, and it's called fast feedback. So imagine touching that hot stove plate, and it only burnt you an hour later, or a day later, or a week later. How long will it take you to connect these two elements, right? And that's one of the practical challenges that we have as entrepreneurs and business owners. Often, the effect of our actions or decisions is only visible much, much later. So we have to think about how can I get fast feedback about this decision that I've made, which I now I'm thinking about as an experiment. How can I get fast feedback? The faster the feedback, the faster to learn. So the connection between theory of constraints and decision making is that our ultimate constraint is our limited attention. And I want to make sure I don't waste that limited attention on making bad decisions. I want to make good decisions and every decision I make, I'm going to treat as an experiment. And how can I get fast feedback? So for me, fear of constraints is kind of like focus and fast feedback. Focus on the constraint, get fast feedback about whether your decisions about how to better exploit or elevate that constraint, is it actually working, yes or no? So how are you getting faster feedback? Because it's a great, very vivid example with the hot stove. You touch it in real life, you get feedback right away, but in real life, you touch it and you get feedback maybe in one week or one month. Yeah. So how can we make it faster? What is the key? Well, what is I'll the give you a very practical example. In the old days, if you were in marketing and you placed uh, an advertisement in a newspaper or a magazine or even on television, you really struggle mm -hmm. to know whether that advert has actually resulted in more sales, right? Because there was right. no fast feedback. Right. Never mind fast, there was just no feedback. You had, you had no right. way of really linking unless you 
had a call center, people phone in and you would ask them, where did you hear about us? And they say, I've just, right. you know, gone through the magazine or saw you. That was the only type of feedback. Today's technology, you place an ad on Facebook and you can track very accurately exactly where it came from. And you can get very fast feedback about this experiment that you've tried, which is I've created, I've built this ad and I'm hoping that this will be convincing for people to buy my product or service. I can get fast feedback. So it's almost that type of thing is how can I utilize technology to get fast feedback about whether something that I'm doing is working or not working. I see. Yeah. Gotcha. So technology will help to get this feedback. Yeah. But it won't be automatic. I need to think of everything as kind of an experiment to learn from, whether it's working or not. I love one of uh, Jay Abrams' quotes. He said, if you remember in the session that we both attended, he, he said that somebody asked him, how do you know you're making progress in your life? Oh, wow. And he, it's, it's, a, it's a really good story. question. And he said for him, every day he's making progress. I always knew that multitask asking is bad, yes. but I never actually thought how actually bad it is. Can you explain to our viewers so why it is even worse than anybody can think and how it actually affects our decision-making process sure. and with activity and other things? I want you to think about three tasks that you are going to do. We can call them A, B, and C. And these mm -hmm. tasks are each about 10 days long, right? So if you didn't have a constraint, mm -hmm. you could do these three tasks in parallel and you could complete all three in 10 days, right? So you stack them on top of each other, A, B, and C. Each of them is 10 days long, and you'd be able to do them all three in 10 days. But if you are required to work on each of those, and there's only one of you, you have to make a decision. How am I going to do these tasks? One way of doing it would be to do A, and then to do B, and then to do C. Now, if you had right. to also make commitments on when will you have A and B and C completed, you would say to to your customer or to whoever you are doing the task for to say task A will be completed after 10 days. Task B, I'll start on day 11, I'll complete it on day 20. And task C, I will start on day 21 and I will complete it on day 30. So if there was some inherent sequence that's important to follow, like A is a highest priority, you would want to do that one first because you want to finish it first and then B and then C. But we all have pressure to show that we are being fair and that we are treating these tasks equally and everybody wants us to give their task highest priority so what do we end up doing rather than doing a b and c we do a little bit of a and then a little bit of b and then a little bit of c so think about that picture right a b c maybe we do one day of a one day of b one day of c and then we go back to a again we do one day of a one day of b one day of c now if in reality there was no switching cost so we didn't lose any time when we switched from A to B, which in reality is of course not true, we lose up to 50% of the time right. in actually switching. But let's assume best, best case scenario, right? You're going to do in that first 10 days, right. you'll do ABC, ABC, ABC. So you'll end up, if, you, if you're lucky, still doing it in 30 days, but you'll finish C on day 30, you'll finish B on day 29, and day C on day 28. Does it make sense? If you were perfectly multitasking, 
working every single right, day. Right. There is no time wasted exactly. on a uh, switch. Now, in reality, right. when we add the switching cost, if we ask people to play this game, rather than that taking 30 days, it takes 60 days. That's how much time we're losing getting our mind to switch, right? And there's two penalties that we pay. The one is I'm going to be, I have to figure out where was I? Why on earth would we multitask? So if you remember that, our highest priority project would have finished in 10 days if we were single tasking. How long will it take us to finish that project if we are multitasking? It will take 28 days. That is three times as long to finish our highest priority wow. project. Crazy, right? Now, of course, in reality, it Crazy. won't be 28 wow. days. It will probably be 58 days if we count in all the switching costs, right? <laughs> because there are other things coming, exactly. which we didn't expect. So right? you asked me to say, why is it even worse than people think? Well, when you think about it, so on our highest priority item, we are spending at least three times as long on it and sometimes six times as long as what it could have taken. That's the first, oh, oh my goodness, right? The second thing is when you think about it from a cash flow perspective, most businesses, right, even the larger businesses want to manage their cash very, very carefully, right? Now, if you think about single tasking, you only need the cash to start A, you get the cash back once you complete B, you use it to start. But think about if you're multitasking, you need the cash to start A, B, and C almost from day one. And then you have to wait right. until day 28 and 29 and 30 before you get any cash back. And you need to pay three times more to the work. Exactly. And, and everything is taking longer right you're getting much less done right. but there's even a there's exactly. even another one that makes it even worse so victor imagine somewhere halfway through the process right you're busy multitasking and i come to you and i say victor i need you to do this for me right i give you a fourth thing to work on which is called d and of course you want to be a good person so you say okay now the question is what will be the impact of this you will immediately start also now doing d so not only you'll do A, B, C, you'll do A, B, C, D, and then A, B, C, D. So by adding this fourth thing, Correct. it's going to cause everything to take much longer and you'll get less done. Whereas if we were single tasking and I gave you this fourth thing to do, you could say, Alan, I'm pretty confident that I will probably be able to start yours on day 31. And this type of job takes about 10 days. So I'll be able to finish it on day four. And you'll be very accurate in your estimation. Whereas right. if you are busy multitasking you have no idea all that you know if you were honest it will take much longer to get everything done you don't know is it going to be 40 days 50 60 90 120 days my goodness that's so true i used to have a software development company and i didn't understand why we're always missing the deadlines why we're always missing the deadlines even though i ask my developers how much will it take you he always tell me okay let's say two weeks i always double yeah. it sometimes even triple it and and still, it's still not enough. You're absolutely right. Because right. when you are busy multitasking, you're working on multiple things, there's no way of accurately predicting how long it will take. Right. But if I let the developer do one by one the project, he will be pretty much accurate. My goodness, this is like... <laughs> epiphany i think for millions of people just don't multitask yeah. then your prediction will be much much closer now, and your customer will be happy. i are but the question is why do people even if they know how bad it is why do i keep multitasking and there's a couple of reasons but the two right. that's most dominant is we assume that the sooner i start something the sooner i will finish it the the only time 
when starting That's something earlier will finish it earlier as if I'm working on one task, then it's true. But as soon as I'm working on two or more things at the same time, that assumption is simply not true. Wow. And this is not so, so not obvious. Yeah. And talking about obvious things, right. Yeah. So Alan, you have taught hundreds of most influential corporations in the world, like Microsoft, Coca-Cola, IBM and Siemens, and how to make them right decisions. So give us an example of an interesting area on which you are focused on and which is very obvious when you point out but profound obvious like to most people you know sure. so people really don't see that way so we had the opportunity to work with the largest book publisher in the world so i think most people have got good intuition because we read books we buy books online etc and they initially approached me and said we have a big problem 40 percent of every book that we print comes back to us for shredding now just think about it sits there on the shelves at some point in time it comes back for shredding so you've paid the printing cost you've paid the distribution cost there and the distribution cost back so one of the first questions I always ask people if they share with me some wicked problem they have in their business a wicked problem is simply a problem that has been around for a long time right I said to them why does this problem still persist because 40% is very high but they told me they're the best in the industry other book publishers that the return rate is 50 and sometimes 60%. So I said, help me understand. This problem persists because either you think it's not possible to solve it, that it's an impossible problem to solve. It's just one of those costs you have to pay to push the books to be in the retailer, right? And you can't accurately forecast. So some books will come back. So what we did was we built a simulation model of their supply chain. And the first thing that we realized, they thought that this was a $150 million problem a year because that's a cost of the wasted printing cost and distribution cost. It turns out that these books that come back, 50% of the shelf space of a bookshop occupied by books that will actually come back. Now imagine you're a bookshop right. and you have to try to make money with half the space that you pay for and half the cash that you get. Right. That's why so many bookstores right. have had to close down. It's simply not possible to make money if you have that high level of return rate. So now how do you solve the problem? I asked them a simple question. When you first launch a book, how much does your customers order? And they say, well, we asked them to order about three months of, of what they think will be the demand, three months, right? So this is again a mindset of our printers is the constraint. I don't want my printers to constantly switch. So when I'm making a, a print run, I want them to print enough that they don't lose time with switching from one book to the other. That rule, by the way, like with a multitasking rule, is absolutely true if you have a printing constraint then it's the best way to run it but they don't have a printing constraint there's lots of printing capacity but they still use this rule and it's causing the whole system damage why because i asked them i said how frequently can you send products to the bookshops they said almost every day so i said why are you then asking them to order three months of books when you have no idea how much of this book will sell so why don't we just order from tomorrow when one we week. launch them we say one week tell us the most you think right. you will sell in one week and we'll right. ship you that right. and we will already start measuring your actual sales on day one so we get fast feedback right remember that was a key criteria we're launching this book it's right. an experiment i'm hoping it will do well but i don't that's my focus treating as an experiment how do i get fast feedback i'm going to measure from day one am i selling at the rate that i expected and if i'm not i won't ship more 
more. If I am, I'll ship right. more. So I get fast feedback. And that means that less of my shelf space and less of my cash is now occupied with stuff that won't sell. And that simple change was enough to double the net profit. So Theodore Roosevelt once said, in, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. And the next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. Yeah. Can you tell us why good people, professionals, often make and repeat bad decisions and how to stop that from happening? So here's something to remember is that good people make bad decisions for good reasons. <laughs> Right. We have to find out what those good reasons are <laughs> and change it. <laughs> right. So, so let me give you two examples. Uh -huh. We often make the mistake of overreacting, right? Maybe somebody says something that we found mm -hmm. very disrespectful. And even though we promised ourselves we'll never lose our temper, we end up losing our temper, right? Or we promise ourselves that I'm never going to go onto a crash diet again until I get on a scale and I think, oh my goodness, I've picked up so much weight and I overreact and I go on a crash diet. Even though I know that, yes, you will lose weight with whatever diet you go on, whether it's the watermelon diet or keto or whatever, you'll lose weight, right? Because you're limiting your calories and you're paying attention to it. But you're probably just going to pick it up again and maybe even more. Or you overreact by a small competitor coming into your market and offering a similar product or service that you provide at a lower price. And you immediately mm -hmm. overreact react by also lowering your mm. price and now it's a race to the bottom so those are three examples of mm. why we overreact right that's the bad decision but why do we do it and the main reason why we overreact is we have either a exaggerated frustration or fear about the current status quo or we have an exaggerated expectation of the future after we've made the change, after we reacted. So whenever you mm -hmm. feel like, oh my goodness, I might be overreacting to this, ask yourself why. Is the frustration I have with the status quo, is it really mm -hmm. true? Or could I be exaggerating it? And that could be, you know, a decision like, I need to quit my job, I want a divorce, or I'm, you know, gonna change this product. It's like, what is causing my frustration? And could it be that I'm overreacting? And the same with the expectation. Could it be that my expectation of whatever action I'm taking, could it be that it's maybe a bit exaggerated, right? And here's one of the challenges that we have in decision-making. For many years, we thought that the decision-making process works in the following two steps. Step number one is we look at reality objectively. We look at all of things and then we decide. It turns out that actually how our minds work is just the opposite. We decide using emotion and then we justify using logic. So we make a decision. For example, I can make a decision the first time I met you that Victor is a trustworthy person. As soon as I make that decision, my mind will start building up evidence to confirm my decision. The mind is simply right. a validation engine. It's mm -hmm. actually really hard work to invalidate an assumption or belief that I have. We have to actually go out of our way and remind ourselves to pay attention to something that is contradicting our decision. So when I feel like I am justified to lose my temper, to quit my job, to get a divorce, to go on that, all that the mind now does 
is it puts glasses on with filters that will find evidence to support my decision. I hope that makes sense to everybody. You literally have to change your glasses and say, is there any evidence that tells me that losing my temper right now is not a good idea? What is the outcome that you want? And is this the best response? Is going on a crash diet really a good idea? What's the outcome you want? Is this a good response? And this is something I want to I wanna give to all the listeners and viewers. A very simple way of thinking about any decision. Make sure it's important, right? Make sure it's something that you can actually do about it. And then you decide, okay, what should be my response? I shouldn't overreact. I shouldn't underreact. And in order to decide what your response you should think about the outcome that you want and then try to evaluate what's the best possible response and for that we've developed some tools and also even an app that people can download for free from the app store it's called the harmony decision maker and that will guide them through these simple steps to avoid the most common decision mistakes that we all make wow that's cool i need to try myself dear viewers if you like this conversation and you found it insightful please like and share with your friends subscribe and hit the bell below to get notified about our new guests thank you and we're moving forward and my next question would be so one of my favorite books is think and grow rich by napoleon yes because i totally totally agree with the main idea of the book the only true limitation is that which you set up on yourself alan what we need to do to make impossible possible and achieve much more and much faster one of the things that i have always been really passionate about is how do you achieve impossible goals how do you make impossible decisions right and it's a very difficult problem to solve because when as soon as i decide that something is impossible guess what i do i don't even try so often what we have realized is that actually saying that something is impossible is a protection mechanism it protects us from the Mm. effort that might be required and it also protects us from the you know the possibility of failure so for many years i was trying to find the simplest possible method or even question that can help somebody disrupt their mind and move from it's it's impossible to possible. And how do you do that? Now, just I want everybody to ask themselves that question, right? Think about the goal that is so ambitious that you call it impossible. And then you ask yourself, it's impossible unless what happens to the mind? It immediately starts working on solving this problem. It's trying to say there's a gap. What are the conditions, those unless conditions that if if I could satisfy them, suddenly the impossible becomes possible, right? right? And that question Genius. turned out to be right. absolutely Amazing. profound because you can apply it to anything that you think is impossible. I had a, a few months ago, I was very fortunate to be invited by Joe Polish to be interviewed by him on his Genius Network. And he said, give me an example. I said, well, what's a goal that uh-huh. you think is impossible? And he said, well, I'm just launching a new book, you know, called What's In It For Them. And my impossible goal is I want to sell a million copies. 
but I think it's impossible. I've, I've never come uh-huh. close to that. So I said to him on stage, I said, uh-huh. it's impossible unless, and immediately unless. I could see him starting to smile, right? Because now you're thinking about it. You haven't given yourself an excuse to stop thinking right. by calling it impossible, right? Now you start thinking about it. And he said, unless I could get Oprah Winfrey, you know, to put it on a book club. I said, absolutely. What else, right? right? And he started listing exactly. those conditions. And suddenly that's the way of of making the impossible possible. This is freaking genius. <laughs> That's amazing. And I heard that you have a book with such a name, right? Like it's yes, impossible. It's, a, it's called It's Impossible Unless. And it's about, you know, these simple type of methods that we can use on how do we go about achieving goals that we think is impossible or decisions that we think awesome. is impossible. So dear, gotcha. So dear viewers, yeah. So if you want to really learn how to achieve impossible, I think that uh, this book will be very helpful. So I will provide the link in the description below so you can download it awesome thank you so alan what is your life story how all this started who what influenced you to become a decision scientist and theory of constraint expert because this is such a like i don't know anyone in this area only you like how did you start well i i grew up you know in south africa we were a family that you know were very very kind of came by with minimum resources we were not wealthy went to public schools nobody in my family does direct family at least that graduated from university and uh, I was very close with my with my grandfather and he gave me books of very successful people to read and one of my most prized possessions was this book a very thick book called the Marquis Who's Who List and it was basically a book of biographies of some of the most amazing minds and successful people in the world and sort of telling their brief story and what struck me was there was not one person in that book that didn't have to overcome some major adversity right some major obstacles in life so that gave me a tremendous amount of hope as a young kid that had very little as to say others have shown that it's possible mm-hmm. right and then i read this quote by henry ford and you have probably heard of it it's one of those quotes when you read it you just immediately knew this is true he said that whether you believe you can do something or whether you believe you can't do something you are right right yeah this is very deep i thought wow you know this is profound so if i believe i can perform well or i believe i can't how can that make a difference right and i immediately realized you know unless you think that the universe cares about you and magically you know it waves a magic wand and says because you believe you you will get it of course i wish it worked like that unfortunately it doesn't at least my understanding but what it does is to say if you believe that you can do something at least you will try it and if it's really important to you right you will give it your full attention right and when you give it your full attention and you don't get distracted with multitasking you know and you treat it as an experiment and every time you try it you learn something what worked what didn't work practically speaking i can see how that can dramatically increase your probability of succeeding at anything that you are willing to try. And that made a profound impact on me. So I started really understanding what makes successful people successful. And I realized it was very little to do with their starting conditions. It had everything to do with their starting assumptions. Mm -hmm. And their starting assumptions was, I can do this. 
I deserve to succeed, I am good enough, etc. And it, it's very interesting. I had this opportunity um, to be invited by Sir Richard Branson to, to Necker Island, you know, and I remember sitting down with him the one evening and we had an opportunity to ask some questions. And I said, when did you realize that your learning disabilities, because, you know, he had, this, he had suffered from dyslexia, also felt like he was the stupidest kid that kept on pushing him back in the classroom. I said, when did you realize Realize that that starting condition, you are unlucky to be born with this kind of thing, right? It's not nice to have a learning disorder. You were born with it. But when did you realize it wasn't going to hold you back? despite you having the starting condition. Mm, and he said, that's a fascinating question because he was reading a book one day and normally he really struggled with reading, mm. but somehow he found himself reading this book and he wasn't struggling that much. And it's like, why? And he realized it was because he was reading something that he found interesting and important. Mm. And I think that that's so true for all of us, right? Life is hard, right? So pick something that you find interesting and important and it will make life a little bit easier that's so true thank you alan thank you for coming on the show if our viewers want to connect with you to ask you questions how they can find you sure my social media handle is just dr alan barnard so a-l-a-n-b-a-r-n-a-r-d mm -hmm. so you can find me on social media with dr alan barnard my website personal website is just dralanbarnard.com and once they connect with me they can direct message me and I'd love to help. I also have a YouTube channel, again, that they can find it on the Dr. Alan Barnard, where I share a lot of the research insights that we gain to, to make it as accessible to as many people as possible. And then, as I mentioned, we have the, a few apps. So Harmony Decision Maker is the simplest one. It's available on all the mobile app stores and also as a web app. They can download it. It's free. Wonderful. Thank you, Alan, for coming on the Contributors Podcast and sharing with us all your wisdom. Thank you. You're so welcome. And thank you so much for the invitation again. My dear friends, if you have questions for Dr. Bernard, you can leave a comment below or you can follow the link I will put in the description so you can go on his website and connect with him directly. If you like this video, please like and share, subscribe and hit the bell below to be notified about a new guest. Thanks for watching. Stay healthy, stay wealthy, stay tuned. Thank you.